Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome co-host Russell Hanby, co-host for, goodness gracious me, it's over 20 years now, um, to Viewpoints, but it's the podcast as well as the radio program. Welcome again to Viewpoints, uh, Russell. Thanks, Henry. How are you? I'm well, thanks, yes. and Can't complain. How about yourself? Oh, I could complain, but I'm not going to. I'm <laughs> fine too. I think we're all doing okay. The weather's starting to pick up a little bit. It's been cool lately, but I we've got a piece on this, the weather and the climate change, so we'll save that up to later. But you had some homework, as I recall. Yeah, we had an item about the town of Gingervik, didn't we, in Victoria yes. last week? And I said, oh, I think that's the name of a plane back in the 60s. And uh, I did a bit of checking up, and it was, a, um, it, it was a, it, the spelling is slightly different. There's no C in the Gingervik aircraft at the end. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, uh, now, it's a, it's a subsonic unmanned jet. It's an unmanned jet-propelled target plane. Sometimes called it, today would be a target drone. And it was for guided missile testing. And it was developed as part of a bilateral agreement between Australia and the UK. Now, as part of the agreement, the Australian government was contracted to develop an unmanned target aircraft capable of a 15-minute sortie at 40,000 feet. Mm. And development began in 1948. The first flight of the unmanned Jindavik was in August 1952. Now, between 52 and 86, there were 502 Jindaviks built at the Government Aircraft Factory in Melbourne for use by the RAF, RAAF and the RAN, and a small number went to Sweden and the US. So it was originally designed as an expendable target. So in other words, they could uh, test missiles, uh, seeing how good it could did it. The missiles could hit these things. Yeah, they're now, the lovely Mark, colours, red. Yes, and the Mark II version uh, engine was designed for 10 hours flight. And it's Aboriginal, the Jindavik, they think, for either hunted one or to consume or destroy. So that's what they think that might be the origin. So there was a Jindavik, sounded the same, but perhaps spelled slightly different. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, a very colourful plane, that one. And um, so it served its purpose, probably one of the earlier versions of drones in a, in a way, wasn't it? Yes, it was, the same principle. And yes, I sent you a photo of it, and you can yeah. see it's uh, rather small, but it's uh, bright red and uh, sort of a sharp pointy nose. Yes, yes, it is quite interesting. Now, here's another question on the word Jindavik. I, I, what's the meaning of the word Jindavik? I, I'm, I'm guessing it might be a... Uh, uh, a First Nations name, an Aboriginal name, or have a yeah. relationship to that? Yes, well, I looked that up, and it's uh, Aboriginal for hunted one, or it could mean to consume or destroy. That's what the research is telling me. Ah, so, the so, one. so, yeah, hunted one perhaps in this case would apply, wouldn't it? When, yeah. uh, I, I, I'd be surprised how the town of Jindavik, which is more of a district than a town actually, uh, beautiful as it is, it's a farmland place, rolling hills, um, that the area became named Jindavik. Uh, it'd be interesting to know why they named that Jindavik. Yes, because it's uh, sort of got wartime uh, meaning on the, now for this plane, but uh, well, it doesn't sort of make sense for the town, does it, so much? No, um, so I grew up around there in West Gippsland. We grew up in Nilma, and I, and I looked up, well, you know, we did some of the history of our town at school, at Nilma Primary School way back in the day, and Nilma's apparently, from what I can recall, my memory serves me right. I've got a few qualifiers in there, haven't I, Russell? If my memory serves me right, that when I was at Nilma Primary School a long, long time ago, um, that uh, the teacher told us that Nilma, or looked it up, Nilma was the uh, the the call of the gang gang cockatoo. 
Oh, right. Hence the name, yeah. Hence the name. And then Warrigal, which is the neighbouring big town, uh, Warrigal, um, it, it's closely linked to the Warrigal, isn't it, the dingo? Yes, yes. Yes. Where did you grow up? Oh, yes, in Melbourne, uh, in the suburbs, Ashburton way, yeah. Yeah, I wonder uh, how that got its name, Ashburton. That's a, oh, yeah. that's, a yeah, no. that's a UK name. Yeah, named after, I think, a property or in England, all those names in the uh, out there, yes. Yeah, there's an awful lot of them here that are, <laughs> are, from, uh, are from England. Anyway, we've got What's Making News. Well done, Russell. You even went a step ahead of what you needed to do by checking up the meaning of the name, which I presume was one of the main reasons for um, for calling it uh, a, a Jindavik. Yes, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well done. Now, the Herald Sun, Russell... We do have some of these good medical ones. I always think these are good news, so we put them out out there. Zero goal on cancer in one of the biggest investments in breast cancer research in Australia. The National Breast Cancer Foundation will today, actually this week, announce it will deliver up to $125 million over the next five years to achieve its goal of zero deaths from the disease. I did look at that and thought, ooh, it's a worthy goal, Um it's a it's it's a pretty big goal though, isn't it? To actually it have no deaths at all, mm-hmm. rather than minimal. Yes, and it, yes, well, there have been thirty two hundred lives lost to breast cancer each mm. year, and it is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in Australian women. And uh, this collective focus, where they got all the money for on breast cancer, targets four areas to save lives: uh, one, prevention through precision medicine; yep. two, early detection; three, preventing progress and recurrence; and four, improvement and treatment of hard to treat and metastatic breast cancer. Now, the Peter. Uh, Mac uh, Cancer Centre Professor Sarah Jane Dawson. She's working on liquid bio, a liquid biopsy test. Mm. Fun, now this is funded by the, uh, the the foundation we talked about, and uh, it detects small fragments of DNA shed from the cancer into patients' blood. So I guess a blood test will see that, and that will allow early diagnosis of breast cancer, and that will of course improve outcomes. And uh, and apparently they think that the NBCF's goal of zero uh, breast cancer deaths is achievable through research. Now, you wonder how long off it is, but uh, it's certainly a a, a rather large aim to have, isn't it? Mm, It is. I mean, it's a worthy aim. Um, 100% though, that's, uh, um, well... Let's hope they can achieve it, but any improvement will be much better than, than where we are now. But they've, they've been making advances, and then, of course, they're showcasing in there a family, a woman there, who, um, a Melbourne mum of three, Sarah Russell, um, gives her hope. She lost, her sadly, her mother and stepmother to breast cancer, and she herself was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2018 and she was only 29 so this sort of research could lead to the sorts of treatments that um, they're desperately looking for and early detection really is the earliest possible detection we, we, we hear this everywhere is, um, is, is the key isn't it to lowering the death rates Yes. Uh, what, what I think they're encouraged a bit by is how quickly they could find new vaccines in, during COVID when it broke out. And they think, well, it can mm. be done. We can get onto these things quickly if we have the wherewithal. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, look, uh, that's, uh, that's really heartening news. And we all need a bit of heartening news at times. There's a lot of things going not too well at the moment in the world, are there, Robert um, Russell? 
No, that's true. So almost a misnomer. They're almost called you Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Our producer, Robert Kelly, he's not too far away. Now, this, um, this is an interesting one. I was rather shocked by this one, Russell. That's why I gave it to you. Yes, I didn't realise that the, the heading in the ages that wraps produce cheaper. Shoppers who are trying to cut down plastic packaging are being charged more for fresh produce than those who buy packaged goods, with a new survey showing supermarkets charge more by the kilo for fruits and vegetables sold without plastic. So it's a bit of a disincentive, isn't it, that one? And um, the Australian Marine Conservation Society, they did send volunteers to 180 supermarkets across the country. Now, of the volunteers who conducted shopper surveys, 78% of them reported that plastic packaged from the produce is cheaper than loose produce when compared price per kilo. And that does uh, penalise and disincentivise people who want to try to shop plastic-free. Now, the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, is leading reforms to force suppliers and retailers to comply with strong regulations to try to, I guess, rectify this. Now, the figures, uh, there are 6.7 million tonnes of packaging each year, and Australia is the second highest generator of single-use plastic uh, after um, Singapore according to Mindaroo Foundation. There's over 14 million tonnes of plastic ending up in, uh, in the oceans each year and the World uh, Federation, the World Wildlife Federation estimates 100,000 marine animals die after eating or being ensnared in plastic. And uh, the Marine Society says that supermarkets should be required to offer loose, fresh produce at cost co- competitive prices. They did ask the three big supermarkets and they seem to be making some effort, they say, don't they, to get better on it, yeah. Well, I don't understand that. You walk into them and and you see signs in those different ones where they talk about how environmentally friendly they are. That, honestly, Russell, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you make something which is dangerous to the environment and and we shouldn't be using and we're phasing it out um, cheaper to buy than the loose stuff which you have to put in your own little package? Yes, it's I don't understand. To... I don't understand that. No, and you think there'd be a cost involved with packaging rather than just having it loose too, wouldn't you? You know, mm. and they, and you think that'd be passed on, but apparently for some reason, uh, it seems to be. I read, I think, just the home brand is the only ones that are, are actually cheaper. But uh, it's a bit hard to work that out, isn't it? Yeah, and of course, a lot of people they have these rolls of plastic there anyway, so you're wrapping it in, your own, in their plastic yourself. Um, yeah. They should be having some other form rather than plastic. They've got plastic wrapping, haven't they? Yes. I always have trouble, you know those little plastic bags you tear off? Yes. I always have, I always, I always have trouble opening them. They to, you know, you're trying to find you're upside down and yeah. you're fiddling around. <laughs> Apparently the trick is to put it in your mouth and lick it and it comes apart. I'll, I'll Something like that, yes, or <laughs> moisten your fingers and moisten just rub fingers, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than lick it, yeah. But then they should. we should be moving away from using those themselves. But it's very interesting that the plastic wrapping pre-wrapped is is cheaper than doing it yourself. I thought self-service supermarkets were meant to be cheaper because you do it yourself. Yes, I would have thought so too. So that was a surprising turnaround, that story. I must must say that one surprised me. It'd be a good one to work out, find out from the companies why are they dearer. 
Mm. There you go. There's yeah. some homework for you. <laughs> I'm sure they'll tell you. They'll give us facts and figures about how good they are or not, you know. Well, I listened to their answers there, Russ, and I, I do have to say when I read those answers, it sounded a little bit like some of the, the talk we get from um, some of our politicians, you know, where they say a lot of words, use a lot of words that don't add up to much at all. No, that's right. <laughs> did did you get that, that feeling too when you read yeah, the, I did, yes. the, the company <laughs> I thought, I thought oh, that's not a great solution. They're not doing a lot yet, are they? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I must say that uh, that I did have a chuckle there. Of course, it's no chuckling matter at all. Now, Russell, we've been on, um, we've been on a lot of good medical things uh, for a long time. Well, uh, people have pets, they have lots of pets and so on and so forth. Um, here's one that's actually on the other side of the coin. This is about um, a lack of vaccines for our dear pet cats. Uh, this is uh, this is also in the Herald Sun. Vaccine catastrophe. Um, and I think they're trying to emphasise catastrophe. Yes, uh, the sub-editors having a bit of fun there, I think. Yes, <laughs> job shortage could lead to pandemic at animal shelters, the subheading goes. Vets and rescue groups are warning about a potentially catastrophic cat pandemic that could sweep through animal shelters as a severe vaccine shortage plagues the nation. Mm, that bit of a worry, Russ. Yes, it is. And uh, animal rescue organisations are forced to reduce the number of strays now they can take in in a bid to avoid a major uh, disease outbreak. Uh, now, I suppose the more strays they leave out, there's also causing problems out in the community. Now, there's a shortage of F3, they call it the F3 vaccine, which protects kittens against serious diseases. And in fact, Victorian pet owners are urged to keep their unvaccinated cats indoors. And animal rescue groups like the RSPCA and the Lost Dogs Home, apparently they're required by law to vaccinate every cat adopted out of their care. But they reckon they haven't got the vaccine. That won't be achievable until the vaccine supplies, and they don't think they'll be replenished until March next year. Now, at the Lost Dogs Home, there are 11,000 cats and kittens last year. And uh, what they want is this law that where they have to vaccinate animals going out to owners. They want the new pet owners to seek a jab themselves through private clinics so that a triage system can uh, supply the most at-risk animals in the shelters. And the shortage of vaccines could result in a pandemic for cats at the worst. So that's what's happening there. There's a shortage of cat vaccines. Mm, yes, and of course um, an RSPCA spokeswoman said um, um I think Boringa Ingelheim, one of the largest providers of the vaccine, said the delays that we're experiencing, Russell, were caused due to new technology and process upgrades at manufacturing facilities in the United States. And uh, it's hoped to resume supply swiftly, but the shortage may persist for several months. Um, do you have a cat? No, we don't have one actually. No, no. Have a dog? Oh, I had a cat when I was a kid. We had a black cat. Oh no yeah, <laughs> we had a black cat. No wonder you've yeah, been dog. Hey, called... no wonder Russell, you've been dogged by bad <laughs> cat luck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> what happened to the cat? No, I got run over in the main high street. <laughs> oh, in Ashburton there? Yes. That was even back years ago before the traffic was as busy as it is today. Yeah, it was an unlucky. The black cat got black catted itself. Yeah, and it it's, have... uh, Tom was called. Tom, the very, cat. very original. Tom the cat. Yeah, oh, that would have. Been. And, and what you were young kid at the time? Yes, teen, well, young teenager. I oh, I you'd, remember, have been, yeah. you'd have been rather sad about all that. 
Yeah, it was a, one of these, like all cats, they're quite happy to lie in a chair on the veranda all day if they could, you know, and not do much. So what was that one? That one wasn't cat napping. It got no. <laughs> You didn't get a replacement. No, we didn't. Not to a cat. We got a corgi instead. Did it get run over too? No, no. He just led to about 13 or 14 and died of old age. <laughs> well, he had a good life. He must have learned his lesson well, Russell. Well, well <laughs> mo- mo- moving on um, to our, our final uh, piece before we do the odd spot. You might like to have a go at it. Yes, the age wrote the hottest year record, mm. almost certain to fall. Yeah, the hottest year record's almost certain to fall. This year is virtually certain to be the hottest in 125,000 years oh. as October as October broke global monthly heat records for the fifth time this year. Yeah, so we've talked about this over the weeks, haven't we, about the global warming. And Samantha Burgess, the Deputy Director of Copernicus mm. Climate Change Service, says this is the warmest year for the last 125,000 years. Now, last month, the previous record that was set in 2019, that was beaten by 0.4 degrees. Now, the average surface air temperature was 15.3 degrees. Now, that's 0.85 degrees above the 1991 to 2020 average for October. So it's broken the uh, the average for those uh, years. And the first 10 months of this year, uh, we had the highest global mean temperature. That was 1.43 degrees. It was actually above the pre-industrial average from the years 1850 to 1900. And it was 0.1 degrees. If you look at the first 10 months of this mm. year, uh, it was hotter than the 10-month average for to 2016. So this 10 months has been hotter than the previous hot month. Now, the El Nino, we know is coming, or yep. just about here, it contributed, of course, to some of the Great Barrier Reef's coral bleaching. That's, uh, that's on again, which was caused by the heat, and to some of the temperature rises, but not all of them. In fact, uh, Melbourne University climate scientist Dr Andrew King says that human-caused climate change because of high greenhouse emissions mm. is leading to is the main cause of record high global temperatures. And Professor Ian Lowe from Griffith University says we still have no policies to clean up transport, agriculture and industry, which I guess are quite pollutants in this regard. So uh, we're, we're warming up apparently and it looks like the experts are all coming out, don't they? Yeah, and it's, um, it's looking pretty grim. I mean, as as um, as Dr Ali, Ali Gallant from Monash University, uh, Associate Professor in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment said, and I'll quote her, the figures are just insane. This is something... Uh, as climate scientists, we look at our computer screens and think, yes, well, this will happen one day, but uh, that day is now. Um, it's uh, It doesn't bode well if you start to crystal ball gaze 5, 10, 20, 30 years ahead, Russell, if you're prepared to do that. No, I mean, we're not just looking at isolated uh, couple of weeks. We're looking at uh, monthly, tr- long, yearly trends pretty well. So uh, that's where you have to look at it. I mean, anyone can quote, oh, it was colder in such and such a year, but that's not the uh, issue, is it? I don't no, think. No, no, it's not one year in isolation or two. You've got to look at trends over a long period of time, and the trend's terrible. Very, very bad. Now, the odd spot, you'd love this one. I never knew this was... I never knew you could have happy rats. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) And be able to work out that they were happy. Yes. Well, rats squeak for ratty joy when their fellow rodents... uh, when with their fellow rodents, according to scientists. Mm. Re- recordings made with miniature microphones placed on rats 
noses have highlighted squeaks not made to communicate but out of pure joy happiness at being together, said Shai Netzer of the University of Haifa in Israel. Now, previous research isolated high-pitched choppy happy squeaks from the lower-pitched noises of discontent. So apparently they can uh, they squeak with delight uh, when they're <laughs> with their mates. <laughs> oh, yes, that's interesting. I mean, we look at rats... And, and they probably don't enjoy a very good uh, reputation with humans, do they? Probably because of the street rats that are out there in the sewers and carry disease. But uh, uh, it's interesting to know that rats that rats have uh, emotions too, Russell. Yes. Well, I've just been, on my Thursday programme, I'll do a few odd spots like, or offbeat stories like this. Yep. And there's another one, there's another rat story about they, they actually have, um, can use their imagination. They've somehow proven that rats can remember where things are, even if it's miles away, like we can, you know. Yeah. I don't know how they do it, but so apparently they reckon they're not unlike us how, with how we think. Yeah, well, on the dark side, there's a few humans that we might equate uh, to uh, to the to rats uh, for other reasons, Russell. Well, look, Russ, that takes us out this week. It's been a great one. Um, and uh, enjoy your weekend. You're still enjoying the new boat that you are living in, your abode? Oh, yes, we are, yes. Lots of activities if you want to be involved. The, the good places you can do as much or as little as you want and uh, plenty of socialising and that, you know, so no one really need feel lonely in these sorts of places. Oh, and the and the maestro of the airwaves, Russell Hamby, <laughs> would be leading the charge. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Take care and we'll catch you next week, Russell. All right, we'll look forward to that it. That was Russell Hanby, co-host for our, our, our regular long-time show now, What's Making News. <laughs>